Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. This week, we have a very special guest. To me. Marco, do you <laughs> want to introduce him? Welcome, my special guest. Hello. <laughs> this is Jean-Philippe Mathieu, my husband and noted labor historian. Noted by who? <laughs> by you? By me. I have Who's no- noted this? <laughs> I have noted it. <laughs> I have noted it. We have it written down in our notes. Yes. Therefore, you are noted. <laughs> noted historian of businesses and l- laboring. You don't even know what I do. I have no idea. <laughs> As my brother would say, a noted nail historian, Jean-Philippe Mathieu, <laughs> is here to talk about being a worker in the 19th century. Labor. Yeah, um, so uh, Jean-Philippe Mathieu, I'm a PhD candidate at McGill University, uh, uh, spe- uh, specializing uh, in particular in labor and business um, history, and uh, present research um, um, is, involves a, uh, my present research involves a, uh, um, a case study of a company called Montreal Rolling Mills, which was a major secondary uh, iron and steel producer, uh, mainly specializing in hardware. And I'm trying to look at that, what that company, the form, what the evolution of that company tells us about the formation and consolidation of uh, Montreal's bourgeoisie, which became by the end of the 19th century the most powerful group in Canada, by far. So that's a little bit what I do. Yeah, you've heard this before. Excellent. Well, I mean, yeah, I've heard it before, but our listeners yes, but haven't. Yes, our listeners haven't there's heard it. Better when I say it. There's a whole, like, t- five people probably out there in the world. No, there's like 2,000 people. <laughs> yeah, there's like two to 3,000 listeners per episode, yeah. Marco. Don't sell us short. <laughs> and they want to hear about what... And those people don't know what JP's doing. Yeah. They just know you as husband and sometimes background noise i try to be quiet when i get coffee (laughs) (laughs) now you're here and we're going to we're gonna learn all about so you like the 19th century right well no one liked it it was one of the worst periods that you could be a, a regular human being um Either um, right. in in I in the mean, industrial world, uh, in the industrialized world, or even in the uh, non-industrialized world, because the industrialized world is coming for you. It was a terrible, terrible period. So I wouldn't true. say I like it. I'm fascinated by it. Wouldn't say I like it. Yeah. So I mean, the general trajectory of our podcast is here's how people sort of did things for thousands of years, and then how uh, the Victorians and other 19th century folks uh, fucked things up for everybody. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, I mean, I've got my <laughs> that's little the narrative preamble that, where, like... That's the historical narrative well, and, that we and, tend and, to be working with. Um, yes. But I guess in terms of, like, laboring and working, so Sonia talked about last episode up to the early modern period, right? Yeah, and basically I was talking a lot about how, like, essentially everyone worked out of their house to some degree, or, like, you were a peasant and you worked in the fields adjacent to your house. So this, you know, because, like, 85% of the population are rural peasants, and then even if you are living in a city, you're probably working as an artisan or shopkeeper or, you know... You're in a guild of some kind, so you're owning your own tools, you're owning your own labor. Yeah. To, in in that in in that regard, if you are a master craftsman, I would. I, I, I would. wanted to bring you on, JP, to talk about like how that that how that is not the case in the basically how do we go from a bunch of peasants 
and like some craftsmen to wage labor. That's that's what we want to talk about today. So pretty much every book written um, from a left's point of view from the sixties, uh, the sixties and seventies, uh, in the historical, uh, historical profession. There's a lot. Um, there's a, a lot going on. Well, I mean, I, we can we can talk about any aspect of that, like. Hmm period that you want to focus on like what what are because i know it's not just like ah the 19th century was everything out of it was bad and now we live in a worse world and everything is shitty like obviously that's not the case so we can complicate our hating on the victorians if you want to or we can talk about you know i don't know sorry go back to what i I was trying to say um (laughs) Uh, I, I would, uh, I would say uh, that um, I would start by by by, by saying that the, the the change starts at home. Um, this is something well established. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the 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 change does start at home. People do tend people do tend to work near for 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 most of human history have tended to work near where they lived. Uh, often, for example, as farmers uh, or peasants or or even as artisans, we were probably working out of the home. But the the shift. What we call proletarization, the, the the shift from uh, the shift from having a a, a workforce that wasn't um, sorry the, the the shift to a to to, to workers being the dominant um, uh, sort of uh, produce uh, the, the 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 dominant part of the producing classes, if you will, uh, that shifts it do, it does start at home. Uh, we're talking about things like hand looms, uh, which was a major uh, um, uh, a major development. We're talking about uh, things pr- producing for the market, but producing for the market from uh, your home. We're not talking about workers quite yet. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But the transition is starting to happen very early, and it's starting to happen in the home. People are working more. There's something what Yand, uh, there is what Yann DeVries likes to call um, an industrial an, an industrious revolution, which precedes the industrial revolution. People are working harder, and they're working harder to access uh, um, uh, 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 market goods. Uh, market goods that are now, or certain commodities that are now uh, cheaper than they were, and this is mainly a consequence of slavery. So there's a lot of this stuff going on. Uh, the main thing that, uh, the, the, there's a huge shift uh, in the price of um, a lot of commodities that, um, that, that um, uh, uh, households would want. And we're talking about popular households, we're no longer talking about rich people. Which people always had access to coffee, you know, when 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 um, it was uh, when it was discovered, they always had access to sugar. They had access to spice. They had access to all, all these things. But thanks to uh, the development of a new world slavery, uh, the discovery of certain new uh, commodities, uh, 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 tobacco being um, um, a, a, a very important one, um, there was an incentive for people to work harder to uh, to to be able to buy these things. They're cheaper now. No, they're still not free, but before no matter before the 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 seventeenth century, no matter how rich you were, um, sorry, um, it, 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 no no peasant could ever afford coffee. Right. But because of slavery, uh, the the yeah. massive expansion of New World slavery, the the, the prices of these uh, of these commodities. Actually, coffee is a terrible example because it doesn't tend to be made by slave labor. Uh, but let's say sh- sugar is a is a major one. Um, the prices are going down; they're becoming accessible. So it's worth it to work a little harder to have access to these things. Linen's another huge one in this period. Um, the idea of having, for example, um, uh, uh, blinds not blinds, but um, Linen, uh, linen sheets curtains. and linen curtains. Yeah, this was a no, no peasant family could ever have dreamed of having like nice linens. But suddenly, with uh, the expansion of of, of of cotton growing, and now we're we're going into the 18th century. Um, uh, uh, what we're seeing is these things are becoming cheaper. So um, the the change starts at home. Uh, but as the uh, 18- As the 18th century, you know, uh, you know, the the, the transition starts to happen, um, uh, in particular in in um, in the uh, in England, as we all know. Um, uh, eventually, you do start to see uh, a shift. More and more people are, are working. More people are, are start working outside the the home. But again, a lot of people worked outside the home, even up until this point. Uh, it tended to be a part of people's lives. 
Uh, wage labor had always existed in some form, ever since the development of markets uh, in, in Mesopotamia. Uh, people had worked for cash. Um, uh, these little tokens with the with the the, the king's head on it that you can uh, use to uh, pay your taxes and 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 pay fines. Um, so th- th- this has always, always existed. Th- th- the main transition to what we could what we could properly call a working class happens starts about the 18th century. Uh, again, people are working more. They're 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 cl- more closely tied to the market. But the the, the main thing up until this point is wage labor is something that you do for a part of your life, often when you're young, sometimes seasonally. Lumberjacking is a great example, which is used, for example, in Canada, um, especially in the St. Lawrence Lowlands, to supplement uh, a farm's income. You know, every winter you'd go, uh, you know, all the, the, the all the men would go uh, into the woods and chop down lumber. Uh, and, and But it would, it's that, that's supplemental income. And handloom weaving, for example, at home, the whole family after a day at the farm, they go in. The whole family kind of work together, make uh, uh, make uh, 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 textiles that could be uh, sold for cash on the market. Um, these things were supplementary income. Uh, it was not you weren't. This wasn't something you were supposed to do your whole year. It wasn't supposed to be something you did for your whole life. One very common thing is young women would often uh, uh, go uh, to work as domestic servants uh, for several years to earn some cash to eventually get married. Um, men would often work as apprentices. The goal is to not do this your whole life. the The, the goal is to uh, to supplement your income or to sort of build a nest egg that after that you can combine uh, the the woman's income and the man's income. The husband and the wife, and eventually you could you could have an independent life on a farm or an independent life as a, as as an artisan who owns their tools, owns their shop. That's the goal. Um, and eventually, this does, this doesn't become possible anymore. Um, the when we can talk about a working class, uh, we're talking about a life sentence. That's the difference between an artisan, a, a farmer, and 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 a worker. A worker, uh, a, a worker has to work for wages their entire life. It is a life sentence. So that's 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 when we have a shift to working class. I don't know if I answered any questions here, but that's that's <laughs> roughly where you see this transition. So this is how we transition from what what you talked about before, Sonia, and 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 tra- transitioning into a world where uh, increasingly all over uh, the industrialized world you have to go. Um, work for wages your entire life you will never ever be able to have an independent life it's very very rare um uh, where in, uh, income inequality gets locked in early um so and this is just what you're going to do um uh so it becomes a, a life sentence right and we've talked about this before right like how people get essentially driven off of land due to enclosure and you know aristocratic and a bourgeois people essentially between the two of them buying up all the land so then you can't be an independent farmer so then you're forced to sell your and population growth sell your labor for wage yeah and and population growth exactly so between the two of those it's this this crunch right um so i guess the next thing i did want to talk about was the working conditions in the you know early industrial period and then you know kind of from there talk about how how people basically go from the very bad conditions to how they start organizing and fighting back essentially um going back to david montgomery's work in the 1970s i believe he identified several generations of workers um the first uh, uh, i think there's three principal generations perhaps four of, of the working class usually in the first generation comes out when industrialization is is just started these people are kicked off the land they go to work in the, in, in the factories in the cities there's absolutely no we're talking about working 14 16 hour days um they 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 they, they don't um tend to uh, these people don't tend to organize or or anything like that. There, it, it's a it's a societal shock. Industrialization was an, an immense societal shock. No one really knew what was going on, um, and and people still I probably hope that they could actually get out of it. Get uh, that first generation, those first workers, um, uh, toiling. 16 hour days in the factories with absolutely a, 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 a smoked a smoked choked factories with um no um uh, uh, no health standards whatsoever incredibly dangerous incredibly uh, um hard labor um and and they didn't live very long lives um and there was there was they didn't intend to organize it was it was a, it was a massive shock um uh, and, and you don't have any sort of public uh, um, 
sort of public health systems, um, the only thing that you do is pretty much the only thing you have to escape um, the horrors of your life is gin. And there is a there's an old saying, it's kind of a dark one, that the quickest way out of Manchester is gin. Um, and and yeah. so this the, the first generation um, it, it it is absolutely a, the working conditions are abysmal the, the the living conditions for working class households are abysmal we have stories of people just living in hovels sometimes five or six families uh, living in single room dwellings uh, um, with with no running water uh, obviously uh, no 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 toilets. Uh, uh, usually you have a privy pit in the back. Usually it's shared by multiple uh, buildings. Uh, the privy pit, of course, uh, is is often is 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 frequently only a couple meters away from the only spigot for water, which is also uh, outside. So you can imagine why cholera is haunting these cities year after year after year in the first part of the 19th century. Um, and of course they don't know figure they don't figure out till later what causes cholera. Um, yeah, but it really is. We go into uh, John Snow and that whole discovery in one of our bonuses. Oh, if you want to check that out, it's on our Patreon. Um, Sonia talks about yep. how John Snow did do one thing. So yeah, it's <laughs> just the it's um it, 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 the, the first generation of workers was an absolute uh, human catastrophe. There's really no way around that uh, that that fact. Um, eventually. Um, um, the timeline shifts depending on what country you're talking about. Of course, England went through it first. Um, if you talk about uh, in North America, we're talking uh, a second generation of workers starts in the, around the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. These people, their parents, uh, they're, they're likely again. This is massive generalizations. They, they do more or less fit a pattern. Um, but chances are these people are a second generation of workers. Their 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 uh, their, their their parents probably were working class. Um, uh, um, and and they, they do tend to start organizing. Often these things aren't what we would properly call unions. Um, unions were not technically illegal in most places. They were frowned upon. The problem is unions were too new. How can you have a law against it? Britain does start to do it with the uh, Combination Acts in the beginning uh, of, of the 19th century. Uh, Canada doesn't... Canada In Canada, unions weren't ever uh, um, actually legal. I believe they were in uh, at least parts of the United States. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not as... Uh, proficient with, uh, with 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 the U.S., but um, as far as uh, um, the, the, the 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 legal aspects of, of unions uh, in Canada, they were never actually legal. Although they thought they people thought they were illegal, you know, they they, they kept um, unions kept being shut down. But the problem is, they it'd go to court and it'd be thrown out because there's no actual law, and you'd have the elite politicians, business people saying, "How could this possibly be legal?" <laughs> like it's, it, 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 um, and so they, they existed in what E.P. Thompson calls an um, uh, um, uh, what is it uh, a uh, indefinite area of toleration, right? It's not quite clear what's going on. Eventually, a lot of people try to shut down unions, but um, uh, for at least most of the nineteenth century, uh, it, it's not really uh, they're not properly legal. So. Um, by the 18, uh, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, a second generation of workers is starting to actually organize. Uh, often these are informal organizations. Often they come from uh, mutual aid societies. Mutual aid societies were, uh, were, were so important for the working class because the government wasn't doing anything. The government wasn't providing any services. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the best example are burial societies, and it's kind of kind of morbid. But morbid. <laughs> yeah, essentially, what you do is you 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 pay a little bit uh, into a fund uh, every paycheck, and when you die, uh, you would get a uh, a proper Christian funeral, and nothing terrified the the, the, the working class was was surrounded by death uh, uh, by death everywhere. So when uh, um, uh, the most terrifying thing for them is that you know their family could not afford uh, to bury them um, you know properly, or that the family would bankrupt themselves trying to bury uh, them, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, give them a proper what I call proper Christian burial. So burial societies are very popular. It's 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 kind of dark, but this is also a period we're probably going to talk about at the end of this season. with another guest, but this is a period where concepts and ideas about death, because of how it is happening in 
such close quarters in ways that it hadn't happened before. And then with also the advent of mechanized warfare, people's ideas of like hauntings and ghosts and what happens to you after you die and the goals of like a heaven type space radically shift. Uh, so that being like a focal point of a workers movement makes a lot of sense. It wasn't uh, a lot of these mutual aid societies. Um, there was burial societies. There was also uh, essentially mutual insurance mm-hmm. uh, societies where it, it's exactly what it sounds like. You'd, you'd pay a little bit uh, into a sick fund. And if you're sick, because remember, uh, there's no paid time off. If you don't show up, you're not getting paid that day. Um, if you don't show up at the factory, like you can't call in sick. You, you, you didn't come into work. You don't get paid that day. Um, you, tr- you show up the next day and hope that you can, you, they, they let you back in. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and seasonal unemployment was, was everywhere as well. There's this, um, one thing that complicates our understanding of the working class, is the fact that for most of the year, you, uh, working class people were probably unemployed. Uh, uh, factories often shut down in the winter, uh, for a couple months. Cause it was, you know, it was a, it was, it was a, you know, a quiet season, right? And why would you open the works? Why would you open your factory? So you just lock it up and, you know, good luck, <laughs> good luck to you. Um, uh, and and you know and and then they reopen it. You don't know if you're going to get your job back. You just have to get pretty much get rehired. You showed up on the day. There's no uh, there's no laws around uh, around this. So um, uh, 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 so these these yeah, inter- I think. Pardon. I also if if we could just do like a quick rundown of all this kind of like stuff that we tend to take for granted. Like, well, I was just going to say I don't sick. think that like or that your job will be there if you take a day off. Because you are sick. Or that they'll let you into the factory if you show up five minutes late. They'd yes. lock the doors. And they'd lock you in. And this is a, this is a huge thing that, uh, that this frequently happened in the late 19th century. Uh, the uh, Triangle Shirtwaist Fire yeah, is the most famous one. But, you know, uh, they, they lock yeah. the doors so you're, you're, you, it's just so that you can't like leave during the day, right? Uh, they lock the doors. And when there's a fire, they couldn't get out. Um, it happened in uh, William McDonald's uh, uh, tobacco factories in Montreal as well in the late 19th century. Uh, it was it was scandalous, but yeah, you, you show up, they'd lock the door so that no one that was late, you know, that's how you get someone to show up on time. You show up late, they lock the door. You don't get paid that day. Um, and and of course, you have horrors like what happened with um, uh, what happens with with frequent fires. Uh, this was um, so mutual aid societies are a way of of dealing with this. Uh, the other thing that is there for both. And mutual aid societies wind up often get turned into to unions, and, and this is why often mutual aid societies were not incorporated. Um, in 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 uh, were not incorporated, right? They would ask to be incorporated, so you'd have you know some prote- some legal protections, legal rights. Uh, but often um, um, magistrates would refuse to incorporate, or parliaments would refu- would refuse to uh, incorporate uh, mutual aid societies. So they were they were scared that they were going to turn into a union. Um, you don't want the working class getting organized, so. Um, so often they, they, they were refused and often they get, did get turned into unions. I mean, uh, the, the, the fear was legitimate. Um, the other major thing that was there for workers, the other major, uh, uh thing that workers create, um, as sort of what, what to, to provide some kind of service is taverns. Uh, the working class tavern is the most important cultural institution, uh, but the, one of the most important institutions, uh, like uh, a period uh, for the working class in the 19th century. Um, at, uh, at at a tavern, we tend to think of taverns as you know somebody's going to go get go get uh, hammered, uh, and of course you can do that, and and you did in that period. I already t- talked about how important gin was and just getting through the day. Um, but uh, it also but taverns tended to provide a bunch of services. They tended to provide entertainment, which was huge. Um, you'd often have things like minstrel shows, which uh, are not um, uh, not a good t- part of our history, but uh, they were it was a very popular form of of, of entertainment in the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the most famous tavern in um, in Montreal in in the nineteenth in the, the this period of the nineteenth century. So roughly the second third, I would say, or mm-hmm. maybe a bit later. Let's say the yeah the, the final third of the nineteenth century is um, Joe Beef's Tavern. Now Joe, uh, the name Joe Beef has been uh, retaken by um, a bunch of hipsters, and and they have a really expensive restaurant called Joe Beef. But the original Joe Beef was um, uh, th- this was a, 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 a the original Joe Beef was really a um, uh, his name is McKinnon. He was a, he was a Crimean War veteran. Um, came to Montreal and opened a tavern, uh, and he provided he provided food, cheap food. Uh, he provided you know drinks, entertainment. They had a they had a zoo downstairs. The zoo was kind of it wasn't really well maintained, but they had a bear, and they give the bear like 
uh, uh, they give the bear uh, beer, and the bear will like stumble around. And this was what you did. You didn't have TV back in the day. Um, Nineteenth century Canadian thing yeah. I've ever heard. But, they, um, they had two bears. They one of the, one of them died, and then they got a new bear. Oh, um, but uh, it provided uh, it, it provided uh, cheap uh, cheap beds for people that were for, uh, for workers that 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 were unhoused. Uh, you could you could you know you you could get a meal and a, and a drink and a bed for for for. for for, for cheap, I don't remember exactly how much it was, but it was incredibly cheap. When there were strikes, uh, Joe Beef would often uh, uh, provide would, would often provide uh, uh, tea and like warm meals and everything like that for strikers. Uh, there was one particular strike in the 1870s where he provided like hundreds of loaves of bread uh, for for striking workers. And it's not just that one. Every city had had these taverns that are providing social services that the state is not providing and making it possible to to, to get by uh, for for the working class. Yeah, we could uh, do an entire episode about the way that the modern Joe Beef is profiting off of its working class imagery, because they also have a cheaper, smaller restaurant that you don't need a three month, like ahead of time reservation to get into uh, called the Liverpool House, Mm. which also just like, hey, let's name this after another like working class industrial city and sell a bunch of like overly expensive uh like working class food it's all like meat and potatoes type of stuff at the liverpool house and it's like 70 dollars for patin yeah <laughs> but again um uh, a working class a working class family couldn't afford to go there the original joe beef you could um yeah that's well, what, well that's i, I want to say I, I shouldn't say family because taverns are an incredibly masculine space in this period uh, whatever women would be there would be prostitutes or 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 or, or, or uh or, or barmaids or things like that uh, they, they are uh, male uh, institutions women went there to work yeah exactly uh but w- women women were, were crucial but uh, okay uh, I, I, I would like to talk briefly about the working class family like while we're talking about women yeah. is uh, for a working class family yeah. um women's uh women's contribution even when they weren't in the workforce often they were there's a lot of um sectors that were dominated by women particularly mm-hmm. tobacco uh, um, uh, uh, a lot of the clothing industry, not necessarily textiles, but like the clothing industry was dominated by women. Um, also, child labor. Uh, as soon as your your kid was old enough to uh, to, uh, to, to 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 pull a crank, uh, you'd often go join his father at work. Um, Fingers. Yeah. Uh, they they do change the laws, but not as much, not that much. I won't go into uh, that too much, uh, but uh, or in too much detail. They do try to improve the laws, but everywhere that the law would actually make material change, there's exceptions. So child labor, they they try to get rid of child labor, except in canning. Turns out that's the only sector who was actually like hiring lots of kids. So everywhere that like you could oh, make a material and, change. Well, that and in the U.S., it's uh, in agriculture. Uh, yes, yeah. child labor is still legal in uh, certain types of agriculture in the U.S. They have to be over the age of ten, I think. Oh, okay. Well, that's fam- fine then. To work on a family-owned farm, and they have to maintain like full school hours. But like in North Carolina, I got a job when I turned fifteen. That's the legal age that you can work like outside of the home. But if you own, um like a family farm you can start working there at like 10 or 11 yeah that's that's not right but anyway yeah but w- women were crucial for for the working class family um uh, even when they, they weren't in the actual workforce they weren't actually working for wages um for a long time it was kind of like one of those conundrums in in labor history that um once you start seeing um poverty lines being established this is mainly 1880s 1890s most countries started to establish poverty lines like what does a working class family actually need to survive it's the first time they had asked um <laughs> and and so they tried to figure it out and and they do and they realized that no industry paid enough uh for uh, uh to escape poverty so like a hundred percent of the working class below the poverty line and so what a big mystery is like how did people survive and and, and this is where we come into the the, the importance of of women's um uh, non-wage labor so we talk about wage labor. Often women were doing wage labor, but there's also unwage labor, which is things like um, um, uh, 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 often you know they take care of borders. You'd have a border come into the house that would provide you some extra cash. Uh, raising livestock. We don't tend to think of cities like Montreal or New York or Boston or, or whatever as having um, like 
uh, pigs and cows kind of wandering around, but uh, they certain, uh, but 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 they did. Um, you, if you see a late nineteenth century city, you'd see you see uh, a livestock everywhere. Uh, the pig was the truly the working man's friend, the working class's friend. Uh, uh, Toronto is called Hogtown for a reason. Yeah, well, that that was mainly um, I, I, that, that was mainly because of the importance of the uh, the the of of, of pork packing um, in in, um, in, yeah, in, in in Toronto. Uh, but every working class, pardon? I didn't know Toronto was called I that. Was yeah, also, Hogtown. I also want to add, it is still on the books that you cannot drive hogs through the streets of Toronto on a Sunday. Any other day is fine, but don't drive your pigs through on a. That's Sunday. that's Lord's Day. <laughs> Leave that's the pigs at home. It's Lord's Day. That's still on the books. They've never removed it, and it's hilarious. This was also an issue um, for children in the working class families was um, having cattle in cities made the cattle more susceptible to bovine tuberculosis, which would be transferred through milk. And um, instead of affecting your lungs, bovine tuberculosis attacks your bones, and children would end up with like their spines being eaten away while they were working in factories from like mothers trying to supplement their diets with milk because it's so fatty uh, and their children getting this specific type of tuberculosis that would eat away their bones. There was also gastroenteritis, which was a, a huge problem by by giving untreated, unpasteurized milk. That often you just like buy. Uh, some farmer would come into town um, and just ladle milk from like on in, into like a container, and then you give that to your babies, and they would die of gastroenteritis. Uh, so that was um, that was another thing. Um, this cavalcade of horrors that I'm describing. Uh, but just briefly, uh, uh, so so women's women's uh, uh, un, 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 unwaged labor is like one of the things that's making it possible for these people to survive. Tending gardens, uh, taking care of borders, uh, uh, raising pigs. Uh, well, I was mentioning that the pig is 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 the working class's best friend. You can buy a piglet for a penny uh, at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the summer or the beginning of uh, the winter. You know the, uh, and then you just uh, you, you'd feed it scraps all, all summer. You'd feed it garbage, or you just let it wandering around, wander around, and and eventually gets fat, and then you either slaughter it yourself or you bring it to the butcher to slaughter, and then you'd have um, you could you could have meat for uh, um, you could supplement your your diet for for um, for months, or you just sell it. Uh, and, and make some extra cash. The pig was was incredibly important. Most people didn't have a dairy cow. Dairy cows are expensive, but every, everybody could, every working class family could afford a pig. Um, so th- there, there's a lot of ways that that people manage to survive in this period where there are no regulations, barely any laws, and all, all the laws that exist are pretty much to try to get women uh, uh, out of the workforce. And it's not because people were concerned about the the condition of of working class women. Is it was it was, it was considered. Uh, you know, it was considered shameful for, for women to be working. Uh, they didn't even consider that, you know, they needed to work for a working class family to survive. So they're trying to get women out of the workforce. Oh, by the way, you guys know why the actual reason that there's the gender pay gap? Like where it comes from? Tell us. Yeah, well, I mean, I thought just, wonder if you knew it. I, I, generic sexism. It's, it's more than generic sexism, although there's some generic sexism in there. Uh, the, the real reason is because we, um, there's an ideology that says that women, uh, that, that, that women um, do not belong in the workforce, and therefore if they are in the workforce, it's because they're supplementing a man's income. Either yes. they're supplementing okay, yes, um, know, either yeah. their husband's income, because uh, uh, women are not yeah. supposed to have an independent life in the 19th century. They're supposed to be tied yeah. to a man, and particularly... Uh, so a man's salary has to be a certain level because he has to provide for yeah. his wife and children, and a woman doesn't have to provide for anyone. It's just supplementary income. So it's just... Yeah. And what's wrong with you sending your wife out there working just so that you could have some more cash? What kind of selfish, emasculated person would do that? Oh, while we're talking about women working <laughs> and women in these like labor and political movements, do you want to talk? And we mentioned the taverns. Do you want to talk about the temperance movement? Because that was a big deal in the U.S. and Canada. And well, the temperance movement is is interesting. Uh, it, it is largely a, 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 a led by women uh, in the nineteenth century, particularly bourgeois women. Yeah. Um, and not always, though. Um, uh, 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 some of the most famous like tem- uh, 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 temperance, like women in the temperance movement, are people that honestly their lives were ruined by alcohol, like the, yeah. the often uh, violent husbands and yeah. things like that. But fundamentally, uh, it was uh, there was a belief. People started to think, okay, why the hell are working class people so poor? Why are there so many poor people? Why, uh, what's going on? 
Now, we know the answer to this. Wages are too low. <laughs> I mentioned it. Like, they can't survive on their wages. That's the reason. Anyways, let's forget about that. People don't make decisions based on what a problem is, like historically. Don't make, mm-hmm. Historical actors don't make decisions based on what a, what a problem actually is. They make decisions based on what they think the problem is. And they think that the working class is just dumb and wasting their money. So what you need to do... so unique to this period yeah. and definitely yeah. has totally changed. Clearly... In so, modern times, we're so they were poor now. because they were buying iPhones and avocado toast. Well, back then it was because they were they were buying booze, they were buying yeah. beer, they were buying gin. That's why they're wasting all their money. Therefore, we get rid of the alcohol, then we get rid of poverty. Uh, and, and this was a huge mo- and and often the temperance movement was really violent. It's a really interesting movement. Often they they would literally go and break up taverns. They would smash the windows, smash all the um, uh, all the alcohol, uh, assuming that, that that would fix the problem. Um, uh, in North America, the temperance movement is very popular, except in Quebec. Uh, French Canadians don't want to have anything to do with it, um, uh, uh, and, and never actually go through with real uh, with real prohibition. They ban uh, hard alcohol in the 1920s when everybody else is is banning all alcohol uh, for like a, a couple years, because uh, it, it ends in 1921. Uh, temperance well, Quebec in Quebec can't ban all alcohol because wine is yeah. God's juice. But they, they, they don't ban beer either. Uh, we're a very big beer, beer, beer drinking population. Um, but uh, yeah, the temperance movement is really a, a, a way that they're trying to deal with the problem. They, they identify that there is a problem, they're trying to deal with it, and this is what they think will solve the problem. Now, as we all know today, again, in something that has no parallel, is uh, um, uh, 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 alcohol isn't causing poverty, poverty is causing alcohol. The solution to people drinking too much is to improve people's lives. It's not complicated. And when people's lives do improve, especially in the post-war era, post-World War II era, drinking goes down. We don't drink anywhere near as much as people did in the late 19th century. Because that's all you had to do. You, 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 improve, you improve things. So actually, some of the things cities did do, especially cities, this is um, uh, some of the things that they did do, like um, the YMCA movement, actually providing uh, recreational services, uh, the, uh, the rise of parks, uh, having other options besides the tavern actually does help solve the problem of working class alcoholism. But the problem is, if uh, but the thing is, if you don't have anything else to do, yeah, you're going to follow to drink. Um, and and yeah, I'd like to also like just use this as a moment. So we're talking about things that did actually improve people's lives, um, and we had talked about the tavern as a place to go for community and for. Uh, like mutual support and things for these like terrible things that are happening to people um and the like parks and ymca movements and stuff are definitely part of this like progressive movement um but i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the things that come out of like a more leftist like syndicalist Type movements. Uh, yeah, well, uh, again, I was just mentioning the generations of workers. By the second generation, starts to actually get organized a little bit. Uh, often, they're they're informal organizations, but they do tend to organize and they, they conduct strikes and they try to fight for better conditions. It's really when you get into the uh, the eighteen seventies, uh, where eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, and in particular the eighties and nineties, uh, where you really see the labor movement um, explode. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's two primary types of, of, of unions in this period. There's craft unions and industrial unions. Industri- craft unions come first. They, they, they kind of, they're similar to old medieval guilds, uh, but, but serving the working class instead of like their artisans. Um, and, and they, they, they try to organize along craft lines. So try to organize all the locomotive engineers or try to, or, 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 or things like that. Um, and they, they tend to, they, they tend to be a little, they they tend to be very effective in strikes, but they they, they don't have very uh, they, they're not aiming that high among you know better wages and things like that. Um, and and then you have industrial unions. Industrial unions try to organize along class lines. That is, organize all the workers in a city, for example, uh, oh, including women, including um, uh, uh, racial minorities. Uh, they try to get everybody into one big union. Actually, the one big Extra union is a big based. thing that comes in in, in, in the late. Um, the idea of the one big union is that comes is very popular in the, the, the 1910s and culminates with the Winnipeg General Strike, which had the one big union. Um, and uh, uh, what, what, uh, so industrial unions are are are, are wind up being incredibly uh, um, very popular and and very uh, um, 
uh, and it's seen as very dangerous. The, the, the most the most important of, of these in the late 19th century, the Knights of Labor. Uh, Knights of Labor come out of uh, the United States. Uh, they go a little bit everywhere in North America. I don't think it's Chicago. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I should have I should have noted it down. It wasn't Haymarket. No, the, the Knights were involved in Haymarket, and the uh, Haymarket the Haymarket massacre in 1886. The Haymarket. The Haymarket Massacre in 1886 was really the beginning of the end of the Knights of Labor in uh, in in um, in the United States because they were blamed for it. Even though it was uh, the the uh, the, the so called anarchists that had thrown those bombs were almost certainly police agents, yeah. um, like Ajap uh, Provocateur, uh, and um, so yeah. The, 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 so the Knights of Labor are very important. They're they're really and and by the 1880s, since the economy has improved after the Great Depression, the 1870s, when the economy improves, workers have more leverage. Obviously, so there's waves of strikes in the 1880s and 1890s. That are, it was Philadelphia, okay. Yeah. Uh, the the Knights of Labor. Um, so uh, they're, 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 um, so you have this massive growth of, of of the labor movement, and they're actually conducting some very important strikes. A lot of which are successful, which um, um, managed to 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 improve things like um, like uh, living conditions. Probably the most important thing, the uh, sorry, living conditions. I should say, like you know, wages and and hours and and even some health and safety issues. Like maybe you should have guards on the machines. Um, strikes are, are rare, though. They're always rare. Um, the biggest thing I th I think the biggest thing that the labor movement is really doing is scaring the hell out of the rich. Yeah. Um, we tend to look at this idea of a of like a socialist revolution in a rich country as, as something completely like uh, almost unthinkable, um, a violent, like revolutionary overthrow in a country like Canada, or the United States. It seems like ridiculous today. Um, back in the late, in, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, a, a socialist revolution in a rich country in a, in a, in a city like Montreal or, or New York, uh, was not only seen as possible, but probable. One of the things that you see, uh, the, the communist party of America was the, like, had it's the largest on record uh third party in the united states like they had a it was like 30 percent of votes in the was it the election in 1904 or something like i mean to a point where like they were turning yeah the, the, the tide of the two I, do you mean the socialist party or the communist party I think the, uh, Eugene Debs ran for president yeah, multiple times under uh, uh, with the Star uh, Socialist Party USA and, and did incredibly well. Uh, um, and, and, uh, and this is happening in Canada too, to, to a lesser extent. Um, uh, it's, it's happening. Uh, the socialist movement, uh, socialist parties are are developing um, everywhere, and they're developing. And they're becoming incredibly powerful uh, in the, uh, the the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Um, and, and yeah, they're scaring people. And and the the result of this is to circle back to what you said is is eventually uh, the the bourgeoisie realizes, capitalists realize, we got to do something about this because they're going to take all our they're going to take all our wealth away if we're not careful. Um, and, and, and so the, so the solution they come with, the, the solution is the progressive movement, yeah. um, which is, uh, a massive movement and, and, uh, not only in the United States, although it starts in the United States and it piggy, uh, it, it, and, but the, the Americans are also basing themselves on, uh, on, on German welfare capitalism. Sorry. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of movement of ideas between, um, uh, between Europe and, 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 uh, North America. Uh, Frank Trentman has a, has a great book about it, um, uh, the, 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 and the progressive movement really is all about using the regulatory administrative power of the state to actually try to, you know, improve things. Use the state to improve things. It's crazy when you think about it. Um, and so the progressives do. Uh, the progressives do actually uh, uh, do things like um, uh, lo lower. Uh, um, you know, uh, how many hours someone can work in a day. Uh, uh, they don't establish minimum wages early enough, I don't believe. But they, they do actually uh, do uh, uh, have regulations for certain industries, uh, fire codes sometimes. Uh, they they, they do... In the U.S., the minimum wage isn't until... That's... That, that, all, that always comes later. The 30s, isn't it? Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly. Canada doesn't have one uh, for at least as long. A, a nationwide minimum wage is established as part of the New Deal. I think they had okay. started doing minimum wages in certain areas, but a, na a national minimum wage was part of the New Deal. Well, that's what it took. It took. It really took... 
absolute abject terror over the possibility of a working class uprising to the extent that um, uh, they do Sven Beckert points this out in his book The Mighty Metropolis about the bourgeoisie uh, in uh, the class uh, the consolidation of the American bourgeoisie in New York um, he points out that uh, they start building garrisons within cities um, that are, are are not meant to fight an outward invasion you put the you, you put your garrisons you put your your, 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 your troops in the city um, uh, in, in easily defendable buildings in like strongholds in the city just in case the uh, the working class uh, uh, um, uh, um, to defend against the working class uprising. So it's they're they're really terrified that they they know how rich they were. They they understand like how unequal society is. They've realized how poor everybody else is. And there's so and for a lot of them, their solution is not to improve people's lives, but is to uh, to um, to you know to better um, uh, prepare for uh, to violently suppress. Um, uh, an uprising, but but the progressives do do a lot of good things. Um, they they don't do it to help working people. They realize that if they don't do anything, um, their 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 position um, is 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 untenable. So and they do improve things, and it, it does work. The progressives do a lot of good things. There's no question about that. But they're this doing it a- to defend against the socialist uh, threat. Yeah, if you listen to our from last season, our Christmas episode actually. <laughs> is about this a lot um, because of the uh, progressive and in the UK, the Victorian ideas around um, reveling holidays. And once you are no longer in the uh, agricultural society that supports like reveling holidays and these overturning of like Lord and peasant uh, situations, um, reveling holidays become a site for uh, organized class violence and that's part of why Christmas becomes this like family holiday that you do in your home around a tree with like simple presents that are given to children. It becomes a child focused holiday because before that it was a period for you to get trashed and go to your boss's house and demand shit from him. And having that be a tradition in this period of on one end abject horrifying poverty and on the other the most disgusting of conspicuous well maybe not the most disgusting because they're not building dick-shaped rockets to go into space while people are starving if they could have they would have <laughs> but the the most like horrifying they wanted conspicuous to. They consumption didn't have yeah, the tech the most horrifying conspicuous consumption um i guarantee you carnegie and they would uh, carnegie would have had a like a, a spaceship <laughs> rockefeller, rockefeller rockefeller would have had two definitely would have yeah, had. he would have multiple spaceships yeah. carnegie each least- more dick-shaped than the last <laughs> <laughs> Carnegie at least was into libraries because he thought some poor people could learn their way out of poverty if given the opportunity. That's his a uh... yeah. He wrote a he wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. Car- Carnegie is interesting. Carnegie Carnegie was a pacifist. He refused to make uh, he he refused to make weapons. Um, yeah. So uh, the U.S. government had to turn to Bethlehem, Bethlehem Steel to get their uh, their battleship armor because Carnegie wouldn't do it. Um, but Carnegie, uh, yeah, because Carne- there was a belief amongst the upper classes that if they were so rich, if they were, they, they realized how rich they were, and and they realized like, oh man, this was because I'm so brilliant. So and they refused taxation. They didn't want to be taxed because they figured like, yeah. well, the government's going to waste this money. I want to know. Oh, didn't Musk say something recently amounted uh, mm-hmm. to that? It's like I should decide where the money goes because I'm yeah, clearly yeah. way smarter than anybody else. That's that's Carnegie. Yeah, that was his it, well, his response to the UN, where yep. the UN was like, "You realize that with like what is it, six percent of his wealth or something, he could end." You mean the yeah. League of Nations? What? The UN or the League World of Nations? Hunger. The UN said this to Musk. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And sorry, then yeah, Elon yeah, Musk, yeah, yeah. Elon yeah. Musk comes back and is yeah. like, "Well, if you give me an itemized, detailed list of what you'll do with my money, then I'll send it to you." Yeah. And that's it's a similar thing to uh, what was. Was it Wealth of Nations? Is that the book, the paper well, that uh, Carnegie wrote? No, Wealth of Nations is Adam Wealth Smith. Wealth of Nations is Adam Smith. Uh, no, there's, but he has another yeah, one I don't, that's I don't playing recall with, what it's the, called. with the title. Uh, I can't remember it, but he has a, where he talks about like, oh, why somebody came up and was asking me why I keep building libraries. And it's like, well, because if I just give the money that I would be giving to the library to the government, then they're going to do whatever the poor people want them to do with it, which would be just to give them the money and let them spend it how they want to, you know, God forbid, like they buy food or something. It's like, but I know 
that what poor people actually need to do is go to a library and spend some time reading in all of the off time that I give them from their 18-hour-a-day shifts. Oh, by then it would have been down to 12 hours, probably. <laughs> but still six, it would have been, yeah, so 12-hour-a-day shifts, six days a week, um, with mandatory required church on Sunday. Uh, I think Saturday would have been a half day. I think you're selling <laughs> Carnegie short. <laughs> okay. So you could take your half day on Saturday um, not to do any maintenance of your home or children or anything like that you should be going to the library in order to better yourself um not spending his money in any other way i really like that on the plus side i'm pretty sure he's one of them that didn't give any money to his kids no he didn't yeah yeah there's a, there's a the couple of them Carnegie Mellon, uh, yeah university and everything comes from in montreal we have one will mcdonald uh who uh uh, he didn't get. He hated his kids and didn't give any money to his kids. He, uh, he, he gave it all to McGill University, nice. and that's why half the campus is, is named after him. Um, yeah. So uh, we're at about the our fifty minute mark. So if there's uh, if you want to take this is our time where we ask if there's anything that you want people to take from, like this examination of the past, uh, how this relates to, this could be your we're actually still in the long 19th century speech moment if you want to do that. You get 10 minutes of freedom just to like ramble at 3,000 people about how studying the labor movement and business history in the 19th century can impact 3,000 people's everyday lives. Uh okay well I'll take uh, I'll, I'll 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 take the bait on that one <laughs> I've 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 been thinking about this a lot the 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 19th century is not over we had this brief period in the um in the post war era after World War II where um uh, uh, things changed significantly if you're lucky enough to live in about a dozen countries in the industrialized world things were good and um, since then we've had people have had nothing but nostalgia for the things used so how things used to be where you know, um, uh, 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 you could have you, you, fa- you could have an entire quiet family, an entire family in a quiet neighborhood in suburbia, uh, um, and you could you could you could pay for everything with uh, just one salary, uh, and uh, you know you could send your kids to school, and 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 that things were constantly becoming you were constantly accruing wealth and this was the norm for for most people your kids would do better yeah your kids would do better than 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 you would uh this is only true for about 30 years um um what we call i guess the the post-war boom um or in france the temps glorieuse so the 30 glorious years um at the end of world war ii and again it it was true for us certain people in certain countries uh and and untrue for most of the world um this is perhaps uh, an argument against uh, Steven Pinker, who constantly uh, who talks in, in in his silly book about how things are just constantly getting better, and 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 he uses a lot of very cherry picked data to try to prove it. Um, I know we're not supposed to have any like profanity or whatever on our thing, but honestly, fuck Steven Pinker. Uh, <laughs> fuck that guy. That book made me so angry. I mean, I think we... <laughs> Sorry. I mean, we also had some profanity at the beginning of this episode, so I think we've really just. Just drop the ball on on being professionals. Oh, shockingly, I don't think it was me. Um, <laughs> no, it was probably me. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, 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 there was this brief period that things seemed to, to improve. Um, I would never suggest that things aren't better today for most people in the world uh, than they were for uh, that first generation factory uh, worker that worked sixteen hours and probably died very young um, due to like uh, due to, to smoke inhalation, um, getting paid cut, almost cut nothing. Yeah, we're not like most people. Um, aren't living five or six families in a single dwelling with no running water and uh, a uh, uh, and 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 a single um, uh, uh, privy pit. Um, I wouldn't suggest that um, that we're still living in that period, but the basic patterns are the same. Um, most people uh, uh, can't. Uh, afford an independent life. We're still living with that m- monumental change that happened uh, in in the 18th and 19th century, uh, where wage labor became a uh, a life sentence. Where most people, most of us, um, cannot 
um, are very unlikely to get out of a situation where you have to work for wage your whole life. The good, the job could be good. You know, you could have a good government job and and be 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 very comfortable. Uh, but for the for for most people, wage labor nonetheless remains um a sort of we've accepted that we're going to be working uh, our entire lives until uh, retirement. Um, if we're lucky enough to retire, I was about to say, that was retire. yeah, that was also that was also a, a really a, um, a post war uh, kind of thing. Old of you to assume. What's in your retirement account, my husband? He's about to turn forty. Yes, I probably bet best not to talk about it. <laughs> Um, you're in for a rude awakening. Um, Spoiler alert, guys. Neither of us have retirement accounts. Well, look at it this way. Canada pension might still exist by the time we get Might still be solvent, you think? We'll see. Maybe. Um, Maybe. Old age pension? Canada pension? Old age pension to get... we We might be able to pool our resources and afford to have six... Six families living in one room. So, something to look forward to. What, what, I'm, what I guess what I'm trying to get to, though, is that, again, is that the, the, the basic patterns are there. Uh, the basic patterns are there. We're living in uh, what a lot of people are considering the second Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if it's more extreme as, as the, la- the, the last one, um, uh, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly obscene. Um, uh, it's... Uh, it, things look a lot more like, and I'm talking about general patterns. Of course, we have nice computers and we have, uh, you know, we have a whole bunch of, of, of wonderful technologies and we do live longer, technically health, mainly te- healthier lives. A lot of that is coming from, um, you know, there's social safety nets that were created in the post-war era that are largely being dismantled. But nonetheless, a lot of them are there. I'm not saying things are as bad as the 19th century. That, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> but the patterns are there. Right. Uh, our, our lives are might be better, but there's still we we most of us cannot um, expect to have a the independent life that would have been the dream of everyone before the industrial revolution. Um, and and, well, that and, and the, the the sort of specificity of the rely, of who you will be reliant on in terms of like there are for a lot of people like six companies that they will be reliant on forever, where you know they're rebuilding factory towns in california with amazon and google yep. and yep. things like that where every time they build a google uh amazon distribution center they're trying to also buy up land around it so that they can force their workers to live there and pay them in amazon dollars where you have to buy from whole foods <laughs> yeah but there's, there's 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 some good things that i guess we can get from the from the 19th century i mean the labor movement seems to be on the uh on, on the uptick who knows if it'll last but Things are, uh, people are, uh, unions are more popular than they've been uh, in, in decades. Uh, there's been unprecedented sp- strike waves. Um, um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's not all negative. But what, what I want to say is that, that the 19th century is still worth studying um, because I think we're still kind of living in the world that the 19th century gave us. And I remember in, uh, when, um, when I was, uh, when I was doing my bachelor's degree, uh, and and people were talking about like uh, a lot of places stopped giving class in the 19th century because it was because uh, uh, by the early 2000s it was no longer the last century. Right. So then you have like an uptick in 20th century his- history, and that's of course incredibly important. I'm not saying otherwise, but uh, the reality is I-, I think the 19th century is still worth uh, worth studying because we're still living in the world that it created, um, and we could just hope that we can sort of uh, we can we can move beyond it. Um, but I think that the world today, uh, in many ways, uh, looks a lot more like like 1900 than it does 1970. Yeah, choose 1970 because 1973 is when things started falling apart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting. Obviously, from the way that I prompted a lot of these questions, these are the weirdo conversations that happen in the Mathieu household. <laughs> it's like you know. I feel like there are other people who are sitting around talking about like drag race and, you know, whatever. And maybe not drag race. Maybe that's not like a universal enough. What do people want? The Kardashians? Is that what people. Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift, that's what it is. Everybody right now is sitting around talking about Jake Gyllenhaal and whatever. And we're in our home, not to like, not like other girls. I'm very concerned about Taylor and Jake Gyllenhaal. But, um,. Like, we tend to have these conversations about, like, oh, man, like, we're still living in the long 19th century and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I think that there was this idea at 
the turn of the millennium that like with the internet and all of these like new technologies that we were at another moment of like this complete change in how people lived um like you were talking you know i think i feel like at that time people were trying to compare it to the shift in life that happened with industrialization and i really don't think that it's that different i don't think that i think that communication is faster and easier but i think that if you read marx or goldman or anyone that comes out of like the leftist movements of the 19th century it brings more true today than anything that was written in 2000 about what computers were going to do yeah, I would agree. I and mean, honestly, the, uh, the the other thing that, that that's interesting to consider is I think the the world and the the world and if you take someone from 1914, um, which is usually considered the end of the 19th century, you bring that person to to today, they have the mental language to understand uh, their world. You know, when I, I always think of the of of, of um, they have the, movies, the, the, they have the telegraph. Yep. Yeah. Can, they they have instant communication across yeah, the world. Can, they've been to a movie. They've used a telephone. Yeah. Uh, they've they might have even fl- uh, flown in, in an aircraft. Those exist. Yeah. Probably own a car. Yeah. Uh, and if you live in a city like Montreal with very whole, old housing stock, you could probably find your old apartment. Like, there's a oh, damn our good chance. Apartment was the, we are sitting right now in a in our apartment, which was built in 1901. Yeah. Um. And 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 so there, you'd have the mental language in a way that if you take someone from, say eight. 1814 and bring them to 1914 they, they couldn't they, oh, they couldn't yeah. figure out what the hell is going on so uh the 19th century is is really it, it is the greatest transformation in human history I, I i would argue like i would put it up there with the uh the the, the agricultural revolution um and and uh and i think we're still living in the world that we've inherited from the 19th century and uh and as you could probably uh, uh guess from my attitude about the 19th century we should probably start thinking about getting past it Anyway, required reading from... Well, here, that's what we can do. So it doesn't have to just be me being like, hey, you should read some anarchists. I didn't prepare anything. Do you have... But like, if if you're just like picking, picking something off your shelf that you want more people who aren't 19th century labor historians or business historians to read, what what is your thing? If you could get everyone in North America and parts of the UK and... India, isn't that where our... We have a weird yeah. dis- global disparity. We have a lot of people in, in India, mostly Canada and the US, and Great Britain, though. If, to get all these people, if you can choose a book, or a few. Well, the most important book is uh, E.P. Thompson's classic, The Making of the English Working Class. It's 60 years old now, or almost 60 years old. It came out in 63, I think. Um, it's very long. It's very well written, but it's very long. So I'd hesitate to recommend that as as a as a first go of it. Um, I I think perhaps the um, one that I could really recommend is Bettina Bradbury's Working Families, uh, which talks a lot about the the working class family as an economic unit. Uh, and and um, it's 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 about Montreal, as you know, it's what I know the best. But it's still uh, uh, wherever you are in in the world, uh, you can you can get, gain a lot from it. And as far as the other side. Um, I would highly recommend uh, Sven Becker's Money Metropolis. Uh, came out in, I believe, 2001. Uh, it's about the consolidation of the New York bourgeoisie. It is, uh, it is a brilliant book to understand who these people were that, that, that were the assholes of the first uh, Gilded Age. Um, I, I think it's a brilliant book. Uh, after we stop recording, I'll probably think of like another 10. <laughs> but like to bookend things, if you want to like understand the working class family, which I think is the single most important unit. Um, I would I would highly recommend Working Families and on the other end of uh, the other side of the coin, uh, Money Metropolis. And as always, at the end of our things, we we recommend Papa Marx and Our Lady Emma. <laughs> as for for some primary documents, if you want them, I just have to. <laughs> At the end of every episode, I'm like, hey, if you guys haven't read any Goldman recently, I it's think you would find her fun. <laughs> and easy to find, too. I'm pretty sure all that stuff's on Marxist.org. Oh, it is. Also, uh, David Graeber, you can get all of his texts for free. 
Yeah, Graber's another uh, another good one, just for kicks. Uh, uh, reading, uh, everybody out there should read Debt the First uh, Five Thousand Years. It's just a fun read. Uh, you will get learn a lot from it. A lot of it isn't relevant to anything I talked about today. No. We're not that relevant, well, like, but you 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 get 4, a lot from it. Thousand nine hundred years of it is not relevant. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Graber Graber's always fun. He he's, he just writes. But he also wonderfully. has like bullshit jobs and a few other texts that are. The, they are really important and I think easy reading. He writes like he's chatting with you. It, it's the most fun thousand page book I know. <laughs> <laughs> right after Lord of the Rings. All right. <laughs> well, Lord of the Rings is the most fun, as we all know. <laughs> and it's a thousand pages, in case you were wondering. Okay. Is it only a thousand pages? I thought it was more. Um, just the text. So if you count it, how he originally wanted it to be published as one book, before you get to the appendices, it hits a yeah. thousand. That's what, yeah, that makes sense. But of course, if you're going right. to read it, you have well, to read the appendices. <laughs> but yeah. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for being here. A pleasure. And uh, You've been an excellent You definitely guest. weren't just held hostage in our house. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was my pleasure. And uh, everybody out there, don't forget to like and subscribe. Yeah. Check us out on Patreon for some extra content about Jon Snow and cholera in 19th century cities. Thank you for listening to the Babiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.